0: Everybody, welcome back to the Age of Enfrightenment podcast. My name is Nick, and I am the Holy Ghost portion of the Trinity that hosts this podcast. And I am happy to introduce my co-hosts, the Father.
1: Oh, is that is that me? <laughs> Hello, I am Theo. I am the Father. <laughs> I live in space, and I created all the birds in the sky. And I'm
2: Dave. I'm the uh, I'm the dog that grants wishes in the Holy Trinity. Right. It's, um, it's not how it works, you fucking heathen.
0: As everybody knows, it's it's in the name of I, the Father, the dog who grants wishes, and the Holy Ghost.
2: I had a brief appearance in Air Bud. <laughs>
1: uh,
2: there was actually a pretty strong. Religious undertone to that movie And that's why they wanted me in there um, Now Ed I know that you're the father But you actually preferred to be called Daddy so out of <laughs> respect we're gonna Call you daddy for the rest of the episode
1: <laughs> Thank you daddy likes that Now okay. I have a question before we get Too far off the topic do you think After Airbud came out that Like the NBA changed their rules so That dogs couldn't play basketball Just to avoid that kind of situation because that would be a real, real unfortunate oversight if they did
0: not. Well, believe it or not, it was already in the bylines, which is why they made the movie as a protest to. I mean, it's one thing to like spend a really long time not not letting minorities into sports. But mm-hmm. the amount of time that dogs have been banned from sports is, is kind of. Yeah, famous. no,
2: I remember when I was on the set of Airbud, like there was a lot of talk about this. And people were afraid that there was going to be pushback from the actual – like from the NBA uh, saying you can't do this. And I had to intercede uh, and grant wishes, one would say, like the holy dog that grants wishes <laughs> to, you know, get this pushed through, get it through the red tape of the Catholic Church. You know what I mean?
1: Man, Air Bud was an important movie, like, like Philadelphia or, or Mississippi Burning – Anyway, what are we talking about this week? So,
0: if you're tuning in for the first time, this is a podcast about fear. (laughs) Believe it or not.
1: There's nothing scarier than a dog that grants wishes.
0: We've we've talked uh, a lot about sort of uh, insidious scary things and sort of spooky things, but I think we're cranking it up to 11 this week and going with, like, the big metal idea of just the most obviously terrifying things probably for when you're a kid I think monsters are the worst and we're talking about the big ones so Theo do you want to kick us off this is kind of your brainchild here
1: I sure do so I've expressed before on this podcast that I am a huge fan of monster movies and specifically I really dig what are known as kaiju movies so kaiju is a word that like you might Know it from Pacific Rim. Um, it's a Japanese word that means strange beast, and it's used specifically for movies that feature giant monsters. So the most famous kaiju, and probably my favorite, is Godzilla. Go go Godzilla. So that that's the movie that kind of brought the the idea of giant monsters into you know international pop culture. And for the most part, when you think of giant monsters, that's what you think of. You think of Godzilla. You think of that iconic roar. Think of them stomping around the city. And I saw Godzilla for the first time when I was maybe like four or five. I had caught one of the um, one of the like the millions of movies in the franchise, and just completely fell in love with it. And I, as I got older, I got really into learning about the place that kaiju cinema has in our history, and it's all very allegorical. The thing about really good sci-fi or really good horror is that when it works, it works on a metaphorical level. You know, the the monsters are supposed to represent something to us.
0: Right, like apartheid. Yes. Almost in every case.
1: Yeah, you see, (laughs) the thing about uh, the monsters in Monsters, Inc. was that... (laughs) They represented apartheid in South Africa.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, this is totally random thought, but you brought up Monsters, Inc. There's only one really enormous monster that I can think of in Monsters, Inc., and it's just in the opening sequence when they're walking down the sidewalk and they're, like, next to a guy's foot. That's, like, the only—I'm surprised they didn't make more do or more use of things like— that the, just the vast size differences of monsters because i feel like godzilla and king kong play such a crucial role in monsterdom
1: sure well that the in monsters inc they gotta like go it went to like closets and, and stuff so like the big monster is not going to fit so that monster they saw in the beginning was probably like homeless because he couldn't work maybe they can't fit in your tiny little closet Theo's poor. (laughs) It's not so much a closet as it is a cardboard box. As it is my bedroom that I I keep my things in. Um, So the first instance of a giant monster on screen comes from actually uh, an Italian film in 1911 called Le Inferno. Which was an adaptation of Dante's Inferno. And if you're familiar with that story, that the, the, the big boss of that is the devil, Satan. And there's some like really famous images uh, from the text of Satan where he's like trapped in ice and just devours the worst sinners. So Oh yeah. yeah. And yeah,
2: I've read about this movie.:
1: Yeah. And they tried to like recreate the, the, the drawings of the devil pretty spot on so i mean it's a little goofy to look at now because it's just mm. like really weird juxtaposition of the the devil being a normal guy with some goofy crap on his face and then just like another film superimposed of it of like tiny people just ah yeah the devil. i
0: think they base that a lot off the gustav Dor illustration where it's because i think i've seen it where it's uh where he's he's is his skin like darker and he's like sort mm-hmm. of like set in the in the ice from like the waist up right of? right yeah, i've yeah. definitely seen this
2: Mm-hmm. When I think about monsters, there's um, there's really three types, where there's the smaller monsters that you would see in, like, a traditional monster flick, um, or I guess a more modern monster flick, I should say, that are small and very fierce, almost like something like a werewolf. And those are scary because they're so fast, and they're small and compact and can hide anywhere. Then there's, like, the dinosaur-sized monsters of, like, even though... They're just dinosaurs of, let's say, Jurassic Park, because they're very much acting like monsters in that. And those are scary uh, because they're so powerful. But you also kind of get the sense of, like, well, I could hide from one of those. There's something terrifying about, like, the kaiju-sized monsters where it's, like, they're legitimately... Or, like, the cloverleaf monster, they're Mm world-enders. Like, um yeah the, the the large scale monsters have always been kind of terrifying to me <laughs> yeah
0: well and the the funny thing about it is i think in film we're only just starting to see really good modern artists. i mean the the old godzilla movies and and the original king kong and things like that are great and they're entertaining but it's hard to find them scary because i feel like there's a disconnect between like the sheer immensity of it it's One of those cases where I feel like modern... You know, people like to gripe about CGI these days. But I think one of the bonuses is we're actually starting to get films like the newest American Godzilla where you can kind of understand better that size difference as opposed to looking at something that's clearly a claymation uh, monster like in the old like Hammer era films or like a guy in a suit like a lot of the old Godzilla films. We're finally starting to get that... Proportion of like a mountain-sized monster and what that would actually feel like. Because I think for a long time it was more in literature where you would really get that stricken by that fear as opposed to in film. And now we're starting to get really cool adaptations of what that feels like.
1: Oh, sure, absolutely. We definitely, in the past decade, have had some really, really intense giant monster movies. And I really like that that's kind of like trending upwards. Yeah. Um, so, what could be argued as the first kaiju movie? Because Inferno had a giant monster, and that was the first instance of a giant monster being on film. But in 1925, there is an adaptation of *The Lost World* by Arthur Conan Doyle, and in that movie, a brontosaurus escapes from the underground world and runs amok in London. So that is the first instance of what we think of for kaiju movies being a giant monster terrorizing like a city and directly coming into conflict with humanity. And that was a brontosaurus. So it wasn't so much like a traditional monster, but it kind of was sort of a, a blueprint for what would come. So what most people credit the first kaiju being in every sense of the term is actually not Japanese. It's American. And that would be, like you said, King Kong in 1933 yeah, absolutely. Really? Right. So, like I said, what makes a good monster movie work is it has to work on a metaphorical level. So there is all sorts of debates and theories about King Kong that go on to this day. I mean, it's – the movie came out in 1933, but it really it, – it holds up. In a lot of ways, it's kind of goofy because it has the stop-motion animation – and isn't exactly racially sensitive. No. But, I mean, <laughs> in terms of story structure, it is solid.
0: Yeah, and even some of the filming techniques of it, besides the animation just of the actual story, it was pretty groundbreaking in a lot of ways that went beyond a monster movie, too. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a reason it's still studied as, a, as an important film in our history, mm-hmm. besides just having a big ape.
1: Right. And the important idea of that movie is man versus nature, uh, men go to this island where nature has gone undisturbed since the beginning of time and has been able to thrive to the point where these dinosaurs are still alive and there's these gigantic creatures. And they take the strongest one. They take King Kong and they bring him to New York. You know, New York in the 30s is just the, the hub of civilization and um, society. And he loses his shit and starts killing people and wrecking stuff. So that is the core conflict for kaiju movies. Man versus nature.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think you touched on something interesting there where they went to a pristine place that was not touched by man. And that even gets carried through, I think, most monster movies, even where man is the catalyst. So if you look at Jurassic Park, this sort of resolution to that was, even though this wasn't a place already populated by dinosaurs, now that it is, the the realization is that the best thing we can do is just leave it alone and not interfere, which they keep fucking up and doing over and over again over the course of the movies. But that Mm -hmm. seems to be the theme in a lot of monster movies. Same thing with Godzilla, where like if things are primordial and in a state that predates man, we're, we're best to not meddle with it in any way.
1: Yeah. And there's also an interpretation of King Kong, and the first time that I had heard this but makes complete, perfect sense was actually in *Inglorious Bastards yep. because Quentin Tarantino was a huge movie nerd. But the idea of King Kong being an allegory for the slave trade and African-Americans... Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. Right, so... And, and they say it in the movie. You know, in his homeland, he was a king. Now he comes before you in chains. And that's how he's introduced on Broadway. So it's this idea of, you know... Africans being taken from their home where they're free and, you know, living in peace and taken to America in chains, across the ocean, put on display. Put on display. Yeah. And not being really jazzed about it.
0: <laughs> no, go figure. Yeah. But you're right, and that was the first time that it ever crossed my mind too, it was also in Inglorious Bastards. And I thought it was a clever way for him to get that idea across because they do it through the guessing game of guessing who the character is. And they're giving the clues and I'm like, well, obviously it's King Kong. And then when he said, oh, I'm the story of the, of the African slave in America, I was like, oh, shit. that is pro- that To me, that's actually a better description of what the purpose was than just nature because it, it does speak to the way westernized thought about culture affects everything. Like, it's it's our nature ever since the British Empire and the French Empire took over so much land to go somewhere and think, you know what will make this way better? Us. <laughs> or, like, bringing this to us.
2: I also like that King Kong has acted as kind of a cultural thermometer throughout the years because, I mean, let's face it, a remake of King Kong comes out once every 10 years or so. Right. Mm-hmm. And the 30s King Kong is very different than the seventies King Kong with Jeff Bridges, where like the, the bad guy is like corporate America. Uh, and you know, Jeff Bridges is like this hippie type that wants to everything to be at peace. And then in the new version, it's, it's war versus science and like Washington is in turmoil. It seems like it's been a good enough story that for years and years and years and years, we've basically been able to like adapt it to modern times in a very interesting way without losing the core elements of the story.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, that's a theme that gets carried through with stories of giants and giant monsters across many cultures. Like in the the few things that I looked up, uh, a lot of the instances where they come up in Norse mythology and Greek mythology and things like that. And we'll definitely talk about that stuff. They, they hold true as interesting allegories for things that were going on at the time, whether it was a certain war or they're reflective of, of what King was in power in that time. They, they always seem to be more of a cultural touchstone than just a, a scary story, something to keep, you know, kids up at night.
1: Yeah. All right, so let's talk Godzilla. Yeah. Let's talk the big guy. Ah! That was a terrible
0: Godzilla.
1: That was a baby Godzilla. He's just a little guy. <laughs> was bad. That was
2: Godzilla from like the 2000 movie. Yeah,
0: yeah. See, that was the little baby in, uh, in Madison Square Garden. If, Spot if on. I,
1: if I could make a wish to the dog that grants wishes, it would be that you never did that. That's what Done. I wish for. <laughs> the Anyways. dog
2: of wishing through the power of editing can make that happen.
1: <laughs> so the first Godzilla movie came out in 1954. And uh, some of you might know, it wasn't called Godzilla originally. It was called Gojira. And the reason for that is Gojira is a word that, it's it's a mashup of the words, the Japanese words for gorilla and whale. So the word Japanese word for gorilla, I swear this is what it is, I'm probably mispronouncing it, but I'm not just goofing, is gorira. <laughs> I... I, I <laughs> Oh no, that can't be true. That's, it's G-O-R-I-R-A, okay? That's, that's Gorira. So I, did uh, we take If, if you're incorrect, him? I'm going
2: to drop in a correct pronunciation right here.
0: Okay.
1: <laughs> and the word for whale is Kujira. Yeah. So if you put Gorira and Kujira together, you get Gojira. And... <laughs> Keep going.
0: Well, no, no, we'll keep going because uh, keep going. But I want to ask a question about the the etymology. But keep right. Keep going.
1: So yeah. it over time it became Godzilla because that's sort of like the phonetic spelling of it, mm-hmm. and just over yeah. time that's what it became. And a lot of the Godzilla movies that came afterward are really campy and really hokey. So they really take that head on. So after a while, um, you know, there's aliens. Uh, there's fairies at point. Um Godzilla dances and does all sorts of like silly stuff. Uh, the first Godzilla movie, Gojira, was none of that. Right, it it was, took itself
0: very seriously. It was yeah. very
1: serious and it really holds up. If you can look past the, the rubber suit, it is really a good film. Godzilla was meant to be an allegory for nuclear war. So this came out in 54. This was nine years after the, end, the ending of the um, war in the Pacific after World War II. So um, nine years after the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where at least um, 129,000 people died. Right. And that's just directly, you know, right. indirectly there's uh, radiation sicknessing and famine that resulted.
0: Right. And nine years later, people are still dying. From, yeah. from the A-bomb because of radiation poisoning. So it's, it's probably on everybody's mind that entire decade most of the time.
1: Right. And this is – that was the only time that nuclear weapons have actually been used in war. And that's just a cultural aspect that we can't even fathom. There's never been an event in America, even some of the really horrible ones, where that many people have died – in the span of three days, because they dropped the first bomb on Hiroshima, then a couple of days later they dropped the one on Nagasaki.
0: Our bad. Yeah. Sorry, Japanese.
1: <laughs> sensitive that one. So the another inspiration from it that is a lot more culturally specific is that in um, 1954. There was a boat called the Dago Fukiara Maru, which is Japanese for Lucky Dragon 5. It was a fishing vessel, and it was in the Indian Ocean at the same time that America was testing thermonuclear weapons at Bikini Atoll. Uh, Mm -hmm. Also, quick side note, uh, in SpongeBob, he lives in Bikini Bottom which is supposed to be directly beneath Bikini Atoll, which is, like, the island that they tested nukes on. I had heard that, which would make sense why there's a strange
0: yellow sponge living down there that can think and talk and dance. Yeah, so they're
1: all (laughs) irradiated mutants. It's awesome. (laughs) And that's why it's called Bikini Bottom. I know, because Bikini Bottom, it's a joke, but... uh, What's a
0: Bikini Bottom? Is that a thing?
1: I don't know. I don't know about ladies. (laughs) But, so, the Lucky Dragon 5 was close enough to the blast range because the nuke that went off was twice as powerful as they predicted so the men that were on the boat just immediately got hit with radiation poisoning and I think there was about 30 of them and just their their hair started, started falling out they got like incredibly sick and this was just this was in 54 so the same year that Gujira came was released and so there was immediate parallels drawn to that so Godzilla represents unchecked nuclear power. Um, he's, in the story, he's a prehistoric beast that was awakened from American nuclear testing. So there's this idea of the Japanese being, just as a culture, terrified of nuclear power, and America is directly responsible for it.
0: And in, in Japanese mythology, was there any precedent for large animals, or did the largeness come strictly... Out of this I'm just wondering if they like You know how things tend to roll mm-hmm. Off of other stories
1: There really isn't any Cultural um, Historical aspects to it There isn't anything that kind of like Correlates to Godzilla mm. um, They were The directors were Just very heavily influenced by Things like King Kong And right. um, Ray Harryhausen had a movie called Beast from 20,000 Th- Fathoms Yeah That came out a year before That featured a giant monster in New York uh, so that was like the big inspiration for that. So So it's
0: pretty amazing. I mean it's a it's a mythology that grew out of modern times. It's like it's a in the same way that ideas about the Minotaur and different monsters in Greece had like sort of political startings. I mean this is something that exists because of modern warfare. That's pretty right. it's pretty crazy.
1: And one of the reasons that Godzilla looks like he does is, you know, well, the the big one is because it was a rubber suit because they didn't exactly have the best special effects at the time, but his skin is intentionally bumpy and black because he's supposed to look like an irradiated mess. So, um, one of the results of the f- nuclear fallout in Japan because of the, the two bombs were keloid scars. So, it's these big, fleshy growths that appear on your body, and they, they're – it's a genetic thing, so it can recur naturally. But after the bombs, years later, people started getting them like all over their body and just like gross, dark blotches. And some people would get them to the point where it was covering like their whole face and like their, their whole torso. So Jesus. Godzilla was meant to conjure that image. So that's why he's so like bumpy and grainy looking. And the movie, uh, I'm, I'm telling you, do yourself a favor and check it out. It's it's just really intense when you have that historical precedent in mind, uh, because it's just about him going into city and just completely wrecking it.
0: And you know what? Kudos to the Japanese for being the bigger men and making this big allegorical monster as opposed to just a movie where horrifying evil americans come and kill them because that's what we would have done that's what we did throughout the entirety of the cold war was just demonize russians they were like well we won't demonize americans directly we'll just make this big giant monster Mm -hmm. that reflects more the folly of nuclear war as opposed to political enemies which i think is an interesting way to take that story right
2: they seem to still be doing that there was, I can't, forgive me, I can't remember if it was Japanese or Korean, a movie called The Host,
1: I believe. Oh yeah, that was, Korean, um, that was Korean. Yeah,
2: yeah, and that, if if you guys have seen that, which if you haven't, I highly recommend it. In that one, it is caused by an American scientist in an industry telling a Korean scientist, uh, who's clearly an underling, to dump all of this very dangerous chemical... Directly down the drain, it causes a huge monster. And then the Americans trying to kill the monster use um, a substance called Agent Yellow instead of Agent Orange.
1: Mm. Um, I get it.
2: Yeah, which Mm. is like a pretty not-so-subtle reference to what we did in Vietnam.
1: Yeah, right. Um,
2: But, yeah, it it seems like there's there's always going to be a way to find uh, to make these monsters like a symbol i think that th- that's typically very far forward in the writer's mind whether right. they're heavy-handed or a little bit more metaphorical but right. it-,
0: it seems like it's still a very common practice to And do then you can like and then you can sell it to Americans like think about how big Godzilla became mm. here
1: well that's the thing is that when Gojira was released in America they recut it Mm-hmm. and they the the Japanese version was an entirely Japanese cast when they released it in America they filmed new scenes uh with an American actor who in the film he was supposed to be a reporter just so that American people would kind of right. you know accept it and the the story was pretty much the same but they kind of shied away from a lot of the anti-American feelings
0: yeah it uh, takes a lot of the teeth out of the story, too. Like right. it, it makes it just a monster movie and not something. Yeah, ordinary.
1: and eventually the the regular version was released, and that was just deemed the better version because it was. It was the original vision of the film. And, yeah, that's that's what makes Godzilla such a great character initially is that he represents unchecked nuclear power. You know what I really like
2: about this, actually? It seems like a lot of these situations, something like nuclear power or the slave trade or something, if we're not directly affected by it, we can sit back and go, that's terrible. But we don't truly understand the fear and loathing that somebody who experienced it would go through. And it seems like, as ridiculous as it sounds, making it like a corporeal figure that actually terrorizes is actually a much... Uh, much more solid way to get your point across, where it's like, this is what it felt like. It was right. this earth-shattering fear, like this terror that nobody could cope with and no one knew how to deal with. It, I, on a lot of levels, it seems like... the that's almost more of an effective way to get it across than just black and white pictures of the uh, horrors of Hiroshima. Yeah. Like, you have to dig a little bit, and it takes people maybe a little bit longer to uh, fully understand it, but it's like, that's what it felt like to that individual, to the people that went through it. You know, I don't want to blow it uh, up too much, but it really, it does seem like that.
0: Well, and that's, I think, an important point that can be applied to a lot of monsters throughout history because I know Theo, you have a lot of stuff on like biblical monsters and it's very similar. The, the beasts and things that show up in the book of revelations, it's theorized by most historians that a lot of that was allegorical about Nero and and some of the Roman emperors that, that were cruel to Christians. It's the same thing. It's taking something that is hard to wrap your head around because it's systemic, uh, genocide, and, and applying things like monsters to it so that it becomes uh, more more palatable as a story, but also really captures the horror that people can do to each other by turning it into a beast.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it become it seems to become more objective than subjective. Yeah. Like, it's a thing that you can point to.
1: Yeah, the reason that monsters are such good fodder for these allegorical movies is that It gives you a chance to process something that happened on a national level. So, Godzilla represented the nuclear war. Um, What comes to mind for me is Cloverfield. You know, Cloverfield was definitely, definitely influenced by footage of September 11th. And that movie came out um, eight years after September 11th. But, I mean, at that point, we really didn't have. A lot of movies dealing with it like i know there was that like nick cage one that seemed really like They're, kind of just yeah. um, you know shitty and exploitive we've had a it.
0: few there was one that came out just last year um, who was in the, I, I can't remember but it, it didn't have a bigger i think whoopi goldberg was in it and charlie sheen I oh yeah that's right it. that looks awesome yeah. I, I think because it's i think it's another example of we have yet to have a really Decent 9/11 movie, mm-hmm. but I feel like there have been a lot of things, comic books, movies, a lot of things that have dealt with the feeling of it in an allegorical way successfully.
1: Yeah, because the mo- you go in because it's it's a genre flick, it's a monster, you're going to be entertained, it's going to be cool, and then it 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 forces you to deal with these these scenes, and it it just intentionally draws up memories of this event, and it gives you a way to process it. Mm-hmm. As a yeah, nation. I can
2: I can tell you right now, I, I grew up in New York City and um at I was living in Jersey at the time of nine eleven. And uh <clears throat> you know, my uh, my parents worked in the city, I had relatives and friends that got caught in the debris cloud. And I can tell you right now, like Cloverfield is one of my all time favorites, but when we first saw it in New York, I think we were together at with like a, a group. Nah, was I there. like Ah, okay. Well, fuck you then. But I, like, (laughs) nobody noticed, but, like, during that first disaster scene, like, I, like, choked up a little bit. Like, because it immediately, like, flooded back all this, like, really bad fear and anxiety that I had on that day, watching the footage, like, not knowing where my father was. Like, you know, it was... There were parts of Cloverfield that were really really linked to a 9-11 that hit me in like a deep hard way right
0: and life imitates art imitates life in the sense that i remember being in eighth grade and even on the news how many people just kept referring to the scene at as, as scene as something out of a monster movie mm-hmm. it's it's burned into our heads so much that even when real catastrophes happen whether man-made or natural we can't help but put our our heads in that monster movie space. Same thing with, like, the rash of hurricanes that we've had. I feel like it, that natural unstoppable force applies to monster movies just as well and it's it's burned into our brains.
1: Yeah. In, last year, uh, Toho Studios, which is the studio that made Godzilla originally, they released a new version of Godzilla called Shin Godzilla and they have a deal worked out with Legendary Studios who makes the American versions where they're able to make separate Franchises. So there's the Japanese one and the American one. So the Sh- Godzilla and Shin Godzilla is not going to be going up against King Kong. Mm. Um, so this movie came out last year and th- it was made in direct response to the earthquake and tsunami of 2011 that just crippled Japan and caused um, a nuclear meltdown. You know, it wasn't a tragedy on the level of the The bombings in World War Two, but was you know brought the nation to a standstill. Uh, people yeah. were you know completely you know just out of their homes without uh, power, without power, power, without food for months, and a lot of people died. In the midst of all this, you know, the earthquake caused the tsunami, and the tsunami caused all this destruction. And as a result, there was the the problems at the power plant. So this immediately conjured up ideas of Godzilla. No, know, oh shit, he's back. Uh, so they made this movie, and the guys who directed it were actually known for this anime called Neon Genesis Evangelion. Which, I know you guys aren't crazy about anime, but this one's actually really cool. <laughs> I'm a and, big fan of their way too long titles, though. Because <laughs> that is a very common theme And the, the concept of it is that it's this government agency that has created these giant, uh, basically mech suits. It, it's essentially Pacific Rim. Right. So the government's yeah. create these giant mech suits, but they're these really like distorted and human looking ones, and they fight these alien monsters. It's really cool in that it's not just like Voltron and Power Rangers, where it's these really like kind of like recognizable things. But the monsters they're referred to as angels. The angels are just horrific, and the the EVAs, the robots that fight them, are just as horrific. And they gave the guys who created – who wrote these um, animes the chance to direct Godzilla. And they nailed it in that they made him so completely inhuman. Um, It starts out with Godzilla coming out of the ocean and he's not – he goes through different evolutions in the movie. So he comes out of the ocean and he doesn't have legs Well, he has hind legs, but he doesn't have front legs. So he's just kind of, like, crawling on the ground and doesn't have eyelids. Who just has these huge staring eyes and is just completely, like, destroying the city. And as the movie goes on, he becomes more and more recognizable. But there's never a point where you get a sense of his personality. He's just a force of nature. And what makes the movie so interesting, like, in that Cloverfield was a monster movie from the point of view of the people on the ground... Shin Godzilla is the opposite. It's a monster movie from the um, point of view of the people at the top. So there's a ton of characters that come in and out. Some of them only have like one or two lines, um, and it's all about the government dealing with it. So the prime minister, um, all of his aides, different um, secretaries and military people trying to figure out what this is, how to deal with it, evacuating people. One of the things that I thought really interesting is that they have these blue jumpsuits that they wear, and they're supposed to be like their emergency uniforms that they're just supposed to wear government-wide, and apparently this was a big deal because when the actual um, disaster happened, when the Fukushima power plant started having issues, that's that's what people would see. They'd see these government agents in their blue suits, and they just completely mishandled the situation, and it's supposed to conjure up – images of that to the Japanese viewers. And oh my God, it's so fucking cool. You guys got to <laughs> well, watch this movie. It's interesting
0: that they do it and I haven't watched it yet, but I definitely, um, Theo just gave me the DVD. So I want to watch it, but I don't know if there's another example of that looking at it in that realistic, how it would be handled way. Cause even movies like, uh, independence day, like big where you are on the side of like, even the up to the president it still feels very far-fetched in the sense that it's like one or two people that are just handling the whole situation. I think it's interesting that as a commentary on like the bureaucracy of government, like you said, there's so many characters because that's what it would be. Like if our government or any government really had to deal with this, it wouldn't be like, the president getting into a jet yeah. and fighting it. It would be this web of people Honest, all running around like chickens with their heads. What cut it off.
1: reminded me of actually for the like the first half of the movie was that movie Thirteen Days about the Cuban Missile Crisis mm. and just Kennedy's yeah. cabinet dealing with that. That's what it reminded me of. And don't get me wrong, there's plenty of scenes of Godzilla, you know, fucking stomping around the city and wrecking shit and blowing stuff up with his atomic breath, but just that aspect of it was really cool and really hammered home for me the idea of these monsters being a way for people to process really terrible events.
0: Wow, that's pretty crazy.
2: Uh, You mentioned angels before. Um, Now, as one... As, like, the uh, holy magical dog that grants wishes, (laughs) I have to imagine that... There was a lot of this in the Bible. I know I've heard a lot about Leviathans, <clears throat> mostly because of other readings I've done, but I, uh, this must come up, so I'm going to turn it over to, to you good Catholic boys. To talk <laughs> about
1: that. So, yeah, yeah. Like I said, Godzilla doesn't really have much of a cultural history in Japan, but that's not to say that giant monsters don't feature in all sorts of mythology because they fucking do.
0: Yeah, there's. Uh, if if you look back through history, it's interesting how some sometimes they're influenced by each other. But what seems to be clear is that despite what continent you're on, this idea of whether it be Titans or or the Jotnar and in, in the Northlands of the the Norsemen or Native Americans even have it. Every culture in Australia, every culture has this idea of either giant humanoids or just giant monsters that are beyond our comprehension in size and power and i think it just reflects psychologically how powerless we feel sometimes toward nature in general and how much of of human history was spent being afraid of everything around us so even just having a bear outside of your campground would conjure up ideas of this massive beyond belief thing so every culture has this and they factor in different religions in a very very big way and i don't know if it's just because that immensity of size almost reflects the power of god there are certain cases where that's that's the case like the titans who begat the gods were literally giants and there seems to be an innate human desire to think of things that way. Like if we descend from anything, it's something that is physically immense Mm -hmm. and that seems to go across all continents basically.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's that's one thing that I love about mythology is kind of connecting the dots and seeing, you know, myths that started in Mesopotamia making their way across Europe and just the, the things that they pick up as they go along and the ways that the stories change, but also the ways that they kind of stay the same. So, if we want to get into monsters in the Bible, and there's plenty of them, um, what what we got to understand is that there's... The way the Bible works is that it wasn't just written by Jesus. You know, Jesus didn't write... No,
0: the dog who grants wishes wrote it. Obviously. Oh, yes. <laughs>
1: Jesus asked me for the Bible, and then I gave it to him. <laughs> well, Jesus ghostwrote the Bible, is what right. I'm saying.
2: Yeah. He's like the M. Night Shyamalan
1: <laughs> <laughs> So... Uh, the Bible is there's hundreds of different authors who wrote different sections of it and it is just a gathering of texts from throughout Christendom that the learned scholars decided to put together the most important ones so they also decided which got left out or which got changed and in the 2000 years since Christ walked the earth, allegedly um, (laughs) it's traveled the world and been reinterpreted and rewritten and you know translated into countless languages over and over again so there's plenty of stuff that got left out plenty of stuff that got changed and some of the stuff that got changed is definitely the weirder shit in the bible yeah. so there's the story in the old testament of these three monsters there's behemoth the monster of the land Leviathan, the, the monster of the sea and Ziz the monster of the air and they're depicted as these enormous creatures like Behemoth is described as a beast so immense that it blocked out the sun Um, Leviathan was a giant sea serpent and Ziz was a bird that they were really fond of the sun being blocked out so his wings blocked out the sun and i'm sure leviathan also somehow blocked out the sun they didn't really have a lot to go on back then so well, there weren't many
0: things that they needed but one thing that they definitely needed was daylight
1: yeah for crops yeah. and
0: just for not being eaten by monsters in the night yeah. so it's kind of a big deal
1: and it said that at you know in the end of days the three of the monsters were going to come together and have this apocalyptic battle and something that just always tickled me Was um, creationists, like people who like to say that Earth is only a couple thousand years old and was created by God. Accurate. Yeah. One of the (laughs) things that they love to tout is that Behemoth lines up with stories of dinosaurs. So they think that that's proof that dinosaurs lived at the same time as humans. Right. Which, one, no. (laughs) And two, I don't understand why they would dig their feet in so hard against something that's so easily disproven.
2: Yeah, don't a lot of... I, f- this, I know this is an oxymoron, but don't a lot of Christian scientists believe that dinosaurs didn't even exist? More well, there's
1: like, that too. That. Well, that's what they're saying. There wasn't dinosaurs, it was, it was behemoth. Yeah, yeah. so
0: there, there are those who believe that dinosaurs were a hoax,
1: mm-hmm.
0: a.k.a. put there by someone, which... Honestly, that would be the most fascinating thing in the world if that many people were able to litter giant manufactured <laughs> bones on every continent on Earth, including Antarctica.
1: And to get away <laughs> with it forever.
0: Right.
2: Yeah, we can't, we can't clean up fucking Puerto Rico. <laughs>
0: but, can, like... <laughs> but I think it's important that even to this day, people are trying to use dinosaurs as a way to hold up a myth. Mm-hmm. because that's kind of what dinosaur bones and, and in general like mammoth bones and things like that have done for centuries. The accounts that the Greeks had of the Cyclops are often attributed to finding either elephant or mammoth skulls fossilized in, in under the earth because they mm-hmm. have elephants have this big casing in their head where it's open so it looks like a central like oculus hole and that's where those things come from and it's allowed these monster stories both in the bible and and elsewhere to really live for a very long time because people can say oh look it's it's right there there's a dragon skull there's a you know there's a titan toenail or something like that so those things pop up all the time and and the bible is uh i, I, I love personally that the bible is full of the same kind of crazy monsters as greek and norse mythology because mm-hmm. it's we glossed over it in catholic school But I feel like it would have been a lot more fun if they they, uh, featured these things a little bit more in what we learned. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, now
2: I have to imagine that if your worldview is small, if you're living in, uh, I don't know, the year 10, these monsters must be an actual reality for you. I'm sure, you know, and I don't have the research to back that, but like... I'm sure reading the Bible much more literally was much more accepted back then than it is now. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it must have been horrifying to a certain extent, um, and it draws to mind using fear to control.
0: Right. Well, and you think about it, too, the Bible as a book took a very long time, centuries, to actually be compiled. But, for example, in the year 10, what they would have had is the same as any other culture, which would be an oral tradition of sharing these stories and telling them around campfires. And I think we've touched on this before in our, our sort of woods episode, like talking about things that go bump in the night and monsters is a very practical way to just get people to be safe in a time when the thing keeping them from wildlife is like a thin sheepskin tent or something like that. So you have to weave it into religion because religion is what is the guidebook that people use for their lives. So there's a lot of practical help that comes from warning of monsters. And
1: much like the the kaiju, a lot of these monsters were meant to represent something palpable. Mm -hmm. So Behemoth, Leviathan, and Ziz are meant to represent the earth, the oceans, and the sky. Then what happens is when you get people that aren't quite quick enough mentally to realize that it's a metaphor and think that it's real... And then they go and say, Behemoth's real, look, there's his bones. Right.
0: Well, that's like in... um, I know in, in Norse mythology, the first giant was Ymir and was sort of just a representation of the primordial earth before we were there. And all of the giants in that mythology kind of have different attributes to them, whether they're in the mountains or... You know, we think of giants and trolls in sort of one way, but they looked a lot of different ways. Some of them looked... More like they just blended in with the sea, and some of them uh, could transform into hawks. So there's that air part. It really is more, every time these giants come up in any culture, it really is more about the immensity of nature than it is about actual giant
1: monsters. So, another thing in the Bible that was partially left out, and it's something we've talked about before, is the Nephilim. So, um, you know, it's a deep cut, it goes back to, I think, our witch episode. We talked yes. about Nephilim. Or Diablo, right? yeah. either one.
0: Yeah, we talked about Nephilim as uh, sort of the the group that brought magic and kind of, like, tr- imbued it into the human race by their intermingling.
1: Yeah, yeah. so it's there's a, a, a order of angels called the Gregori, which means watchers, mm-hmm. who were tasked with watching humanity. Uh, they fell in love with human women and interbred, and their offspring were called the Nephilim, and they were depicted in the Bible as giants that... Yeah roamed the earth, and uh, a lot of the older, older stories in the Bible, well, a lot of like the older versions of the Bible talks about how the flood of Noah, the story of Noah, was not only to wipe out wicked men, but to cleanse the earth of giants, the Nephilim.
2: Yeah, it was to get rid of the Nephilim. Yeah. Uh, Because, yeah, these were the angels taking human forms, but those were obviously not their natural forms, created these essentially Monsters that were much, much too powerful had some archaic-like uh, secrets, knowledge, and powers, but were still inherently flawed because they were humans.
0: Mm-hmm. And it also ties in nicely with the naturalism of observing the actual natural world. So, all cultures to some degree knew that there once that once upon a time mammals and reptiles were much larger by finding their bones and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it. It makes sense to say, like, oh, the flood er eradicated them. It's not that far off from the the asteroid, which is the leading theory as to why the dinosaurs disappeared. Just this cataclysmic event that made it so we wouldn't have to live in a world full of giant
1: beasts. Yeah. And what I like about the Nephilim, and it goes back to, like, the idea of mythology sort of changing hands and there being this sort of, like, pseudo-myth that all cultures kind of have it goes into the idea of these giant men that lived long before us and were displaced so you can see the nephilim as mirrors to the the frost giants of the the nordic religions and the the titans of greek mythology and that's something that i always loved is that titans they're what came before the gods, but they're often depicted as being horrific monsters, like the, the Cyclopses were Titans. And Zeus's father, uh, Kronos, and the Greek translation would have been Saturn, his whole deal was that he killed his father. And when he started having children of his own, he would eat them so that one wouldn't ever displace him. And that ends up being Zeus, Zeus uh, is smuggled away by his mother, and Zeus eventually kills him. And there's this famous painting. of uh, It's called Saturn Eating His Child by Francisco Goya. And even if you don't think you know it, you know it. Dave, um, Laird Baron brings it up a lot in his writing. Mm -hmm. Because he writes about these horrific monsters from beyond time and space. But it depicts Saturn as this half-man, half-beast giant with, like, his cruelty.
0: mouth is wide open his yeah. eyes are like bulging out and of just his like head.
1: long hair and just weird distorted limbs and that yeah. i think perfectly encapsulates the idea of the the primordial giant right. the the monster that came before us and yeah. one that i love is the irish version of it it's they have these creatures called the fomorians which were in mythology the inhabitants the original inhabitants of ireland and they were basically like Irish titans. They were ugly, malformed beasts. Uh, their leader was Baylor, the god of death, and he was depicted as a cyclops. And what was really cool is that he was so powerful that he – his just looking at him, gazing into his eye, his single eye would kill you. So it almost makes me kind of think of, like, Black Bolt from Marvel Comics, mm-hmm. whose power is he has this, like, destructive voice so he can never speak. Right, like, if
0: he whispers at you, you'll just explode.
1: Right. <laughs> so Baylor would have to wear an eye patch because just gazing into his eye would kill you. So obviously he didn't want to kill, like, his own people, so eye patch. And they were defeated by the Tuatha de Danann, which is the crazy made-up Irish word for their gods— uh, but yeah, this
2: actually came up in Hollow Earth. Uh, Celtic folklore believes that there is a cave in Central Ireland that actually opened up and released these uh,
0: these Celtic gods to take down uh, this exact issue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just like... Dave shared with us a photo of Saturn devouring a baby Ruth. <laughs> so I'm <laughs> just enjoying that i think i think our our listeners will want to google that
1: <laughs> we'll be sure to share said, that i didn't <laughs> well so
0: and i was thinking too when you brought up that painting by goya it ties in nicely with a lot of the theme that we're seeing where using myth of giant beings as something larger so goya painted a lot of things based on myth but in a time centuries and centuries later he was more of a contemporary of the 19th century i think and he lived in spain during a time of like huge political turmoil and he would use these sort of classical myths and things as sort of an allegory for what's going on so the, the way that the government was treating the people and things like that and that's why i think these characters from myth will never really die because they're applied so well to whatever the situation is at their root they're very simple, classic designs on characters that we can apply to anything. And we're seeing things pop up more now in popularity, like the Nordic myths, because there's sort of a renewed interest in them because of things like Marvel Comics. We're seeing them use more in like comic books and movies and things like that to, to do the same thing, to speak to whether it's overstepping governments or things like that. I mean, we, we talked about in our movie uh, Podcast, and I finally watched it myself. Troll Hunter, that is very much the classical trolls and giants, but it's also very clearly it has that sense of like government mismanagement as well and government cover-ups and and sort of uh, and the destroying of the natural world by civilization. So there's a lot more to it. Whenever mm-hmm. these things come, I can't think of a single really good monster movie that doesn't have an underlying theme that's more about society. I can't really think of one that's just like, oh, it's just a monster movie. At least not one that I have well, really
2: done. The to to answer your question, the bad monster movies uh are just monster movies. Right. Um yeah, you, you know, I'm the reason we're having trouble naming one is we try to avoid terrible monster movies. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess like I don't know if arachnophobia was a direct response to to anything, but uh, maybe.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not gonna have time to try to figure out the, the deeper meaning no, behind the moral, arachnophobia. The moral be- that
1: the creators of arachnophobia tried to instill in their film was that. Roe v. Wade should be overturned. Right,
0: <laughs> and that David Arquette spent way too much time before that
1: being in like decent movies. No, no, no. David Arquette's in uh, Eight Legged Freaks. Oh, that's what I'm thinking of. Okay. That's a good movie, though. That is a good movie. Arachnophobia I is a good movie too. That's that one's got John Goodman in it, so you know it's yeah, good. Yeah, I
2: think with Arachnophobia, I mean, weren't we in the the thing is that's a bad allegory about not exploring and leaving well enough alone because they went, it was a team of researchers that went right. into the jungle found this spider. Oh god this is terrible symbolism it breeds mm. with one of the native spiders and it creates this super spider that kills everything. You know what? I think my whole opinion of arachnophobia mm. just shifted. <laughs> it's yeah, actually you really quite just, racist You just <laughs> yourself out of that one <laughs> <laughs> ah. So
0: wh- one thing that I wanted to touch on a little bit and we don't have to go into, we can go into more on other podcasts was there are giants in different cultures, but they're not, they don't always represent the same thing. So, for instance, if we look at dragons really quickly, there are sort of two major... There's a lot of different kinds of dragons, but there are two major distinctions between the European dragon and the Asian dragon. And I think what's really interesting is the European dragon is, across the board, vilified. They, and they also are sort of an allegory like for things like sloth, greed... They're usually depicted as being uh, very covetous and wanting all of the gold or wanting all of the treasure or they just want to keep an entire landscape all to themselves so they can destroy the crops. The Asian dragon, interestingly enough, is very much the opposite. They are symbols that you want around. They're symbols of good luck and health. They, uh, in some cases, breathe clouds, which bring rain as opposed to breathing fire. And it's just kind of intriguing that on the different continents people took that idea of a, a monster, a flying monster in very different ways. and you see that kind of played out in different cultures. like the Norse for the most part, the Frost giants, the Jotnar were villains and and against the gods. but there's a lot of stories where the gods are kind of the bad guys and they're sort of just bullying the giants and the giants in those cases represent more. That nature that should be left alone, but mankind represented by Odin and and his brethren uh, Can't help but kind of going in and stomping them down, even though they just kind of want to exist So there's a lot of different ways this plays out, and I think it's important to note that because Our idea of monster movies are monsters as the bad guys And I think we're starting to get more and more depictions where that's not the case Like the newest American Godzilla, where he's a force of nature that is just serving his role in an ecosystem as opposed to he's here to destroy all of humanity. Mm -hmm. So what else? uh, I think we talked about all the, the main stuff that we laid out. I think Theo, you wanted to talk a little bit, and this is probably a good way to close about the sort of biological realities of giant monsters and why we don't have them. And what it would take, maybe, to, to actually have them exist in our world. Yeah, let's do that.
1: So, I, I feel like it goes without saying, uh, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> Something like Godzilla could never exist. It's physically, biologically impossible. So, let's think back to prehistoric Earth when there were dinosaurs, which the largest animal to ever walk the Earth... Was the Patagotitan Mayorum Which it. was I, I tried <laughs> yeah, good. Which, It was a uh, sauropod So it was a, a four-legged long-necked dinosaur That was It was just discovered in 2013 And it was 120 feet long And weighed 69 tons So Jesus. Yeah And this thing was Fucking gigantic And then Dinosaurs. most dinosaurs were fairly big. There were obviously small ones. Uh, some of them were as small as chickens, but the majority of them were, you know, 15, 20 feet tall. And even after dinosaurs died off during the, the time of the prolifi- proliferation of mammals, we had mastodons and giant sloths and saber toothed tigers. So basically a lot of the stuff we have now, but like huge versions of them. And in the ocean, things like megalodon or plesiosaurus. Like, if you want to, if you want to scare yourself, look up what a megalodon is. This is a prehistoric shark that's like the size of a whale, and it's like holy shit.
0: Yeah, if you if you can get yourself to DC, there's a really great set of megalodon jaws in the Natural History Museum that just blow your. Because the only thing that sharks ever leave behind are their jaws, so it's we have to speculate. And scientists can do a pretty good job, but they have to look at the jaws to think of how big the entire animal was. So we have a pretty good idea of that, but the the, the only visible way you can see it is really to look at the jaws, and it's pretty astounding to imagine a fish essentially being that big. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: and this wasn't a whale shark. Think of this as a souped-up granddaddy to the great white shark of today.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it is a super predator.
1: Yeah, yeah. it'd fucking kill you. <laughs> so the reason that animals back then were able to become so gigantic is that the Earth wasn't yet fully formed, and the atmosphere was much, much richer in oxygen. So oxygen makes things grow larger, basically. If you're able to have a larger influx of oxygen, you're going to go bigger. Um, And once the oxygen started to dissipate, evolution kind of took its course and things became smaller. So if you were something the size of Godzilla which was a land animal, which would have lungs, it would take, like, probably, like, 20 minutes for it to fill its lungs with oxygen. So it would just be impossible for it to... It would to, just
0: suffocate. It wouldn't be able to breathe our atmosphere, really. There's just not enough oxygen in any given space. Right, to-
1: right. So it's, it's, it's an evolutionary trait that things eventually became smaller. Uh, you know, it's the smaller you are, the less energy you need, which means the less food you need to consume. Um, also, there's the issue of bone density. So the way bones work is that they grow larger rather than they grow stronger. So if something like Godzilla or King Kong were to be alive, they would have to have crazy dense bones. And they just wouldn't be able to function as two-legged Bipedal creatures and gravity would just crush them. So, I mean, in reality, it's probably a good thing, right? Because if Godzilla were real, people wouldn't be the dominant species on Earth. But you know, it'd be nice to dream, but it would be cool.
0: Yeah, well, so it's interesting too that you said so there's the two things that work there's the air that they breathe, and then there's also the gravity aspect. It's almost like if a creature on Mars, which has a much lower uh, gravitational pull than we do, could live off of what is in their atmosphere, which is not a, a lot of oxygen, then theoretically that would be a better home for something that's large because it would have less gravitational pull on its body. It's like we, we can speculate about it a few different ways, but it is interesting that this pops up a lot where people do their research where you see, like, uh, Land of the Lost and certain stories about bygone times where even mosquitoes are, like, the size of an eagle. Like, that would all have been true during the prehistoric era because of the amount of oxygen in the air.
2: Now, I obviously don't believe there are large monsters uh, bumbling around the Earth, but let's talk about the ocean real quick because let's we're talking, we're talking about gravity and air uh, and those, although, like, uh, the use of gills does convert to breathable air. Uh, it seems like the science there would be a little bit different. Not saying not bonker science,
1: but there has to be some variation there. No, you're you're absolutely right on the money with that. So once you take away the 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 challenges of gravity, because gravity doesn't work the same way underwater. And oxygen, because the way that gills work is that it takes in water and it filters out the oxygen in the water. So it's not the same. They don't function the way that, like, lungs do for land creatures. Uh, Things underwater have a completely different genetic path uh, or evolutionary path, that is. So there is something, a phenomenon referred to as deep sea giganticism, which is the idea that creatures living under the water are able to grow ginormous. So think about like the colossal squid You know now We know that giant squid are Real but for You know the last hundred years They were just conspiracy Theories and basically a cryptid And way Before that they were creatures of mythology So everybody knows what the Kraken is the Kraken is something from Nordic mythology and it is a giant squid So Nobody thought that was real for the longest Time until they started showing up
0: yeah well and there it's interesting that things like giant squids do pop up in different cultures and a lot of it came came down to like sailors you know tall tales and things like that but it makes sense because even the first things that we saw of the giant squid were its tentacles we didn't find one alive we found pieces of it and then we would sort of have to guess at how big the entire thing was so we knew that these pieces existed but we didn't know the full scale of it it wasn't until the 2000s that we actually saw on camera the first colossal squid, which was a huge discovery because it basically said there are certain things that come from myth that are founded in, in reality. Like this mm-hmm. is one we can put in the books as a real thing.
1: Yeah, and then there's examples of, you know, fish, which are these long spindly fish growing as long as like 20, 30 feet. Mm-hmm. And a sunfish, which is just a regular fish, being the size of like a bus. So yeah. things underwater can grow gigantic. Uh, the, we've, I'm sure we've all seen, like, box jellyfish, which are these huge, huge jellyfish. So if there was going to be some kind of creature that would be to the scale, probably nothing like Godzilla, maybe Cloverfield, it would come from underwater.
0: Right. And the important thing to note is that despite how many nature documentaries we have and books we have about the ocean— it is still laughable the percentage of the actual ocean's full volume that we've explored. It is less it's it's in the single digits, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. As far just because most of our planet is covered in water. So it is kind of I think the last hope we have of a true giant monster. And we do have some. I mean the blue whale is the largest animal that has ever existed on our planet according to any fossil record that we have. Uh, available to us, uh, 90 or 100 feet, I think.
1: Yeah. yeah. Oh, by the way, the largest living organism is a species of fungus called honey fungus, oh, yeah. which exists in the Blue Mountains of Oregon. And this is a single strain of fungus that stretches for 2.4 miles. Jesus. Right. Yeah.
0: It's- so if we just adjust our sense of what a giant organism is, that fits the bill it's literally Boy. an entire
1: forest It 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 exists primarily underground it's parasitic, so it kills trees and scientists have this is this is wild um, they estimate that it's somewhere between um, one thousand nine hundred years old to eight thousand six hundred and fifty years old well, so I'm that's glad. A, that's a big gap
2: I'm so glad you didn't say like. Uh, they estimate it between being one and three years old. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my God. In a couple of years, it's going to cover the entire earth. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, well, the point is that, you know, we tend to think of life in very defined terms where the reality of it is, is that it's very, very varied. So we got things like this fungus. We got things growing underwater. Um, and it, we, there is a possibility slim, but still a possibility that something like that could exist.
0: Right. The, the, I think the, the general conclusion that we can come to is that giant monsters are very real, we just don't call them monsters, because we tend to the second something is real to us we give them a classification and they just become animals, but the Leviathan, things like that if you're a fisherman on a small wooden boat during the year 20 B.C., and you come across a humpback whale that's a monster <laughs> you know we we have we can remove ourselves from that but monsters are based on real animals that we have and we're finding new species prehistoric and living all the time so this is one of the things where whereas in Age of Frightman i think we, we tackle a lot of conspiracies and debunk them we, there are certain things that we can debunk like Godzilla as being, being real for the, the physical reasons that. sorry everybody it. Godzilla's not real <laughs> but we cannot debunk the notion that giant animals that would qualify as monsters are among us all the time we just need to shift what we consider a monster to be I think
1: yeah think if you never saw an elephant before
0: yeah oh yeah All right.
1: Scare the
2: crap out of you <laughs>
1: it's got a, got a big old trunk What's, look at that there's a nose.
2: russell he's got a, a big old nose and, big old and then you open it and holy shit there's an elephant in there what do you do
0: <laughs> uh this is a lot of fun uh thank you theo for doing so much research on this one i think this was really really cool and way up i would hope all of our listeners alleys
1: yeah i'm just glad i found a way to stretch kaiju out for over an hour because <laughs> that was that was that was what i was going for awesome yeah but i mean yeah, i'll
2: edit it down to like five ten minutes but like yeah no i'm <laughs> glad that you got to talk about that for an hour.
1: yeah so we're, thanks uh thanks for indulging me and uh thanks everybody for listening yeah we're probably gonna throw in a little bit extra about the holy trinity
0: the the father the dog who grants wishes and the holy ghost <laughs> yeah <laughs> so Nick, can you draw that <laughs> <laughs> so thanks everybody uh for listening uh dave do you want to tell people where they can find us
2: no, cause I always get it wrong. So I'm gonna ask you, Nick, to tell people where they can find <laughs> us. <laughs> oh, I'm
0: so glad you said that. This is my favorite part of the episode. You can find us at age or sorry, aoepod.com. You can find us on Twitter at aoe_podcast. You can find us on Facebook. Just look up the Age of Enfrightenment. Simple enough. And most importantly, we're on iTunes. So you can go on iTunes. You can hit subscribe. Please do and then you can have us in your feed every couple of weeks listening to stuff like this. And more important than that, listen, but then give us a review. It would be really sweet of you, and it would help us out, and maybe more people would hear this, and then we wouldn't like quit two weeks from now like we've been talking about doing. If you're wondering <laughs> if I'm holding the podcast over your head, I am. Tell your friends where we're going to stop doing it.
2: And we'll find you. <laughs> we will. <laughs> we will come to your house.
0: All right, so thanks a lot, everybody.
2: Thanks. Bye guys.
0: Bye. So. <laughs>